Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the key word in the new data strategy action plan is action. This year's plan directly focuses on improving the effectiveness of these foundational kinds of actions, governance, planning, and infrastructure. The training strategy to get zero trust right at your agency. We conduct phishing exercises each month with our employees and we track metrics in our failure rate. Uh, We include phishing email training within our annual cybersecurity awareness training. We talk about ransomware and the number of attacks that are occurring worldwide with our executive leadership and also with all of our employees. And soon, if you want to manage your TSP account on the go, there's an app for that. The app will be just like any other app that you have for your bank or any other financial service. You'll be able to do anything that you need to do. It's Friday, October 29th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The nominee to become the Pentagon's next chief information officer plans a new talent strategy if the Senate confirms him. John Sherman tells the Senate Armed Services Committee that strategy would cover cyber and digital talent. Sherman says one element of his strategy would make it easier for people to move from government to industry and back again. 5G cloud providers should prepare artificial intelligence tools and machine learning systems to secure their clouds, according to the National Security Agency. New guidance from NSA says sophisticated real-time continuous monitoring could be crucial to securing clouds that 5G technology powers. The report's the first of four from NSA aimed at 5G service providers. The military's only made, quote, marginal progress in acquisition speed. The outgoing vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General John Hyten, says the department is still, quote, unbelievably bureaucratic and slow. Hyten will leave his job and retire from the military November 20th. You can read more about all these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. The new federal data strategy year two action plan includes a long list of actions agencies should take. The plan came out late because of the presidential transition. Jonathan Album is federal chief technology officer and principal digital strategist at ServiceNow. He's former chief information officer at the Agriculture Department. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I quote my colleague Dave Nichapier writing on fedscoop.com, actions one through six of the 21 action plan directly correspond to those of its predecessor. What difference does that make? What's the significance of that? And what do you see more broadly as you read through this action plan? Welcome, Jonathan. Well, thanks, Francis. I think the fact that you can see um, connectivity between year year one and year two um, is really important and demonstrates that those first six actions were, were probably the right actions. They survived the transition. You know, so, and and if you look, the, look at the plan, you can see that agencies made uh, some progress around each of these. And this year's plan directly focuses on improving the effectiveness of these foundational kinds of actions, governance, planning, and infrastructure. So I, I appreciate that the plan doesn't jump to other things and focus on other things so dramatically that you skip these foundational activities. Because if you don't have a strong foundation, you're not going to be able to do the higher value, higher, higher, uh, harder, I should say, um, uh, actions that the, the plan is going to require in future years. And remember, this is a 10-year plan, which I also think was, was very well thought out in the beginning. It's so easy in government to say we'll be done um, 
you know, next week or will be done by the end of the administration. But uh, changing the culture of government takes a long time. Changing the way people think about data and use data takes a long time. There are incremental improvements you can see along the way. They call out many um, successes and some around COVID-19 in the plan. But to, you know, really create a, a culture where data is a strategic asset, where we're really a digital government is going to be a 10-year effort or more possibly. And the way the plan is uh, articulated this year and the focus on um, these foundational activities, I believe makes that possible down the line. The benefit, I think, to this being a 10-year plan that is maybe maybe I'm reading between the lines of what you just said about short, other shorter-term plans, they never finish on time. You know, we, right. we, we yeah, come up with 12 to 18-month plans and they never are completed. So this strikes me as a more realistic timeline. For sure. Um, what do you see in the action plan as far as what agencies should be doing over the next year, though, to hit the 10-year mark at some point in the future? Where should the focus areas be? I imagine it depends on where agencies are in their journeys, right? Uh, yeah, and the plan offers flexibility and is respectful of the fact that not every agency is the same. And I think that's also refreshing. Oftentimes, there's a, uh, these plans come out and there's an expectation that every agency can can move at the same pace. And that's never the case. They're funded differently. They have different um, uh, capabilities inside the agency. So there's a reflection here of what the government actually looks like and how it operates. But areas that I think, um, to me, the one that's most important is the idea that we need to increase the skill set of our, uh, the data skill set of our, of our employees. And if you don't have employees that have uh, data literacy, data skills, can understand how the data uh, flows through an organization and how uh, the work gets done, you're going to be um, challenged, I think, to really transform the agency culture around data. People have to understand their role in creating data and using data and using data to drive a mission outcome. So that, uh, I think it's action four, increase the uh, staff data skill sets. And there's, a, I think, a related action, uh, I think it was action nine, around creating uh, a workforce development plan. Those things are really important. Now, of course, those are, you know, those, to me, those are more foundational in some ways than some of the other actions around uh, making sure you know what your data is uh, to answer your agency priority questions or having data governance. Those are critically important, of course. But if you, if you have a small group who's very smart on data and does those things, but you don't have an agency workforce that can take advantage of that, you're not going to get very far, in my opinion. So uh, we have to continue to focus on our people. It always comes back to people and, and, and all these big things we're trying to do and make sure that they have the skills and they are prepared to create uh, you know, a mature data culture, uh, mature data infrastructure, um, a, a complete understanding of our data and governance practices. Uh, in his story on fedscoop.com, Dave Nichapier writes, half of the 2020 action plan's 20 actions were completed on time. Mm -hmm. That might not sound great. 50% doesn't sound great. That's in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, the fact that we made any kind yes. of progress at all while agencies were doing what you and I and others have talked about on this program and on others over the past 18 months, what they've had to accomplish that strikes me as, as monumental. I, I agree. Um, the fact that this the Chief Data Officer Council was stood up and that CDO Council played an important role in COVID-19, uh, sharing data and creating uh, working groups around data sharing that supported the government's responses. I think maybe one of the one of the most important things to call out as 
as a success. And, you know, again, 50%, uh, if you look at it one way is uh, maybe not impressive, but in the, in the, in the context of a pandemic and in the context of government where there are uh, tremendous uh, stresses and strains and all these resources outside of supporting um, the, the 20, uh, 2020 action plan. I think it's, I think it's a, it's good progress. And again, um, I, I give the, uh, the authors of the plan some credit for recognizing that uh, while a lot of progress was, was, was made around these foundational activities, more is needed. And if you look at the 10-year plan, the, the, the next version should also still be focused on foundational activities. If you look at the uh, stair step sort of ladder of, of improvement and um, actions over 10 years, that building a foundation uh, is, is a three is a three year process. So we're we're staying focused on what we said originally. We're continuing to build the foundation to to do really big things with data over time. It's encouraging, I would think, to someone like yourself that we're staying on track with something that was released in a, pr- a prior administration rather than going in a completely different direction. The agencies started their work when the original uh, strategy came out under Suzette Kent. They're continuing it now under Claire Martorana and the CDO council leadership has stayed present. Ted Kalk still, who you know very well, um, still running the CDO council, even though he transitioned from USDA to OPM. So there's some continuity, not just in the ideas, but the people that must be pretty encouraging for all of these practitioners across government. Yeah, I think it's very encouraging. And, you know, they talk about long range planning here and aligning future plans with the budget cycle, which I think is really encouraging because uh, while there's, you know, many, many actions that uh, can be done with existing resources, you're not going to achieve this plan strictly with existing resources. You're going to need people like we talked about already, but you're also going to need some money. And um, making sure that there are budget requests associated with data, I think, is very important. And the fact that we are seeing this continuity, I think, makes that even more possible. Uh, you know, for example, if, you, if we take a look back at how agencies in, increase their cybersecurity budgets over time, it took a while and still there's still a need there. But you began to see, you know, focused budget requests over the past several years for uh, cybersecurity. I think we need to see those same kinds of focused budget requests for data um, by agency or government-wide approaches. You know, put money in the TMF to support these data practices and data achievements. And there, you know, in the plan, there are these uh, uh, shared interest groups and um, cross-agency uh, activities, and those really require um, a community of practice. I guess you. Would you might call it, but those shared solutions really require um, a government-wide approach. And government-wide approaches are hard when you're looking at individual agency budgets. We need to be thinking big and um, thinking about the TMF as a way to fund some of these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But again, that takes a couple of cycles. And while there's money in the TMF now, you know, a lot of that's going to be focused on cyber. We've already seen that. Data is the next thing, in my opinion. And if we can um, use... uh, a plan like this and the successes from 2020 and successes that we're already achieving in 2021, now we have some evidence that uh, focusing on these kinds of things provides a value to agency missions and agency responses. There's a, there's a wildland fire uh, action in this plan about you know making sure we have the right data sharing between Department of the Interior and Department of Agriculture and state and local agencies. And we can demonstrate maybe improvements in how we fight fires and minimize uh, minimize loss, things like that 
people in, in the public and people in Congress recognize this. That's a really good story. That's how we use data. That's how we made an improvement. It's being able to tell stories like that and thinking about these things over a long range uh, plan that create the opportunity to have uh, budgets created to do the really big things that are planned multiple years out from now. Yeah, you read my mind. I mean, I, I was about to ask you, does this tee up as I thought it did when I read it, uh, the Technology Modernization Fund to be a tool for agencies to try to work over this stuff multiple years out? And it sounds like that's exactly where you're thinking. Uh, that, that's uh, that's exactly, that's how I would do it. Yeah. If I were if I were uh, trying to do the long range, range planning, you do some agency individual budget requests and a TMF request and encourage agencies to submit their data infrastructure and uh, other other data uh, related asks, you know, to the T to the TMF as well. And I think, you know, there's one, one more, I think, really important point, um, having, uh, you know, having knowing what your data important, most important data is and knowing where it is and how you protect it, and having the right governance is all very important. But ultimately, we have to make that data actionable, there have to be a ways to um, uh, do things with the data when we when we know the data says something, Let's take that action. And I'd ask, you know, in here, are there ways in there? There's, there's thinking around automating actions, which I think there are, because there's an AI component to this and using AI responsibly and uh, making decisions and whatnot. So uh, investing in technologies that support making data actionable, workflow technologies, AI technologies, things that can uh, simplify the way agencies operate and rededicate people inside agencies to the higher value tasks, I think has to also be an underlying theme in uh, in the plan uh, this year and in, in years going out. All right, just real quickly, are we still on track to hit the goals, the 10-year goals of the original data strategy, do you think? My my my, uh, my guess is yes, because, you know, we, we sometimes we uh, overestimate what we can do in one year or, or two years, but we underestimate what we can do in 10 years. And while the, 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 the goals are um, aspirational in some senses and, you know, lofty, these things have um, a way of uh, gaining momentum and support where we can do a lot much faster than we think. It takes time to build. And that's what we're doing with this foundation. But I predict that over time, if we continue to focus on this and we have the right support and it continues through administrations, we'll be able to hit those goals and probably exceed them in some ways. It's great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to the action plan and read my colleague Dave Nichapier's story on it in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Office of Personnel Management's one of three awardees that will get money from the Technology Modernization Fund for Zero Trust projects. The Patent and Trademark Office, he is already on the Zero Trust journey. PTO's Chief Information Security Officer, Don Watson, tells Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash how PTO's using the White House Executive Order on Cyber to accelerate its Zero Trust efforts. One of our CIO's top priorities is cybersecurity and has been even before the EO was published to focus our efforts on stabilizing and securing our legacy products and delivering modernized secure products. There's no doubt in my mind that zero trust architecture is the modernization of traditional cybersecurity defense approaches. And with our deployment of identity access management solution and a future zero trust solution, I have pretty high confidence that our high value assets will be protected through granular access control with multi-factor authentication combined with the micro segmentation of systems, both on-premise and in our cloud environments. 
Well, I know your agency has been a pioneer in letting workers work remotely, but talk to us a little about how the government's general willingness to allow employees to work remotely has altered some of your approaches to identity and multi-factor authentication. Sure, Wyatt. As you mentioned, yeah, we, we have long provided the programs, tools, and IT infrastructure to support a robust, robust telework program for our employees. And in the past three years, we've done significant IT improvements with remote access, asset tracking, collaboration tools. So when we you know, hit the pandemic in March of 2020, we were able to deploy a fully remote workforce quickly without disruption to our services. It was really great. We know that remote users place greater demand on traditional VPN-based access with latency sensitivity and bandwidth intensive applications that our examiners use. So I think the challenge in the future is to allow distributed access for our users while still maintaining security detection and monitoring and policy enforcement. Accessing through the cloud, connecting through their nearest points of presence and using a secure access service edge approach which is a single platform with a single pane of glass that we can see the our organization's end-to-end security. And part of that SASE that I just mentioned supports zero trust network access for secure remote access by distributing the secure configuration of all devices. We can make sure everyone's uh, configurations are in place before they connect and then monitor the endpoint behavior for continuous protection. So that's, that's kind of where we're going. Well, next, talk to us a little bit how USPTO is moving towards a more human-centric cybersecurity model, for instance, by helping equip employees to deal with the growing threat of ransomware and phishing attacks that really go beyond uh, network perimeter defenses. Yes, we, we conduct phishing exercises each month with our employees, and we track metrics in our failure rate. Uh, we include phishing email training within our annual cybersecurity awareness training. We talk about ransomware and the number of attacks that are occurring worldwide with our executive leadership and also with all of our employees. We've recently included a warning banner as we, you know, we service the, the nation and our customers. All of the inbound external emails that we receive, we now have a warning banner just to remind our users that they should consider the source before responding, clicking on links, or opening attachments. The great thing is, is underneath, we have great robust endpoint protection uh, that can stop any known malicious activity or from any payload from downloading. And then at the email gateway as well, we try to block as much spam and phishing emails that we can before they come to someone's inbox. So really a robust training and education and awareness across the entire agency. And then lastly, Don, what steps are being implemented uh, to help your organization's employees to create and manage their passwords more effectively? Well, Wyatt, we do enforce multi-factor authentication for USPTO staff access to our enterprise network. Once you're in, we do have some internal legacy applications that require username and password. Uh, but we do have an identity access lifecycle management tool, which really provides us a fully automated approach to provisioning access based on a policy we set, making sure that training has been completed and making sure that accounts are recertified and those type of, you know, uh, lifecycle management things that need to be done in an automated approach versus a manual approach. It also gives us complete visibility to monitor and manage all access in real time. Um, and we require password changes at set intervals where we don't have multi-factor, and we do enforce strong password requirements. I did want to mention why with privileged access to our infrastructure assets, we do require multi-factor authentication as well. We have an alternate smart card for authentication. 
Um, and then we have other tools in place like a password vault solution. And also we deployed a privilege access management solution uh, to make sure that our privilege access credentials are secure. The Chief Information Security Officer at the Patent and Trademark Office, Don Watson. You can find a link to his video with Wyatt Cash in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. You'll get an app soon to manage your thrift savings plan account. The TSP is rolling out some other tools, too, to modernize the way you manage your account. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The app that people will get, what will it do? What will people be able to do through it? Welcome. Thank you for having me, Francis. The app will be just like any other app that you have for your bank or any other financial service. You'll be able to do anything that you need to do. Um, you know, right now uh, for my bank, I can take a picture of a check and deposit it, which I think is magic, but it seems to work. And people will be able to do that. So if they've got, if they want to make extra loan payments, for example, they will be able to do that by taking a picture and uploading their check through the app. I note that uh, these this mobile app and there will be other service channels, we'll talk about those in a moment, to be offered in response to participant expectations for digital engagement. You're just really trying to meet your participants where they are, aren't you? We are. We serve, as you know, we survey our participants. We ask them what they want. We just recently did a participant satisfaction survey and our participants are satisfied with us. But as you might imagine, um, particularly particularly younger uh, participants, but even across the, the spectrum, people have gotten used to the ability to use an app. People have gotten used to, you know, having the biometrics on your phone so you can unlock an app with your face. Um, you'll be able to do that with the, the new app. And um, so we are just trying to respond to what people have become accustomed to in other lines of business. There's a ton of stuff here, a mobile app, a virtual assistant driven by AI, I imagine, but you can tell me about that. Uh, live chat rather than somebody having to get on the phone and call a call center. That's got to be effective for you and your colleagues at TSP on the back end of this too, in addition to being a benefit to the participant. Absolutely. It's just like when you deal with, you know, your telecommunications company, which is always seems to be a challenge. We want to be easier than that. But you can go on the website, you can start a chat there. And then if you still quite need to talk to somebody to really have that understanding of what you need, that will transfer over. So you don't have to start all over again with the call center, which is is huge because that's just such a frustration when you have to repeat yourself. Um, and this will move that information amongst the channels available to the participant. You're actually getting ahead of some of the private sector uh, retirement plans, Kim, with this feature that I just experienced changing jobs. I want to do a rollover from my old jobs 401k to my new gigs 401k. You're offering online tools to do those kinds of things and different options for people to do those kinds of things. My plan, which I won't call them out because it's one of the high profile private sector plans, they're still making me get a, a hard check from my old 401k and mail it to them. And it looks like you're offering uh, online tools and stuff to help people do those things more easily too. 
we're we're also going to be offering what we're calling a concierge service to help because it is that is a pain point for everybody. It's not TSP; it's across the industry, um, and we'll be. Uh, providing help to participants who want to roll money into the TSP, we will be happy to help them do that. You're offering something, too, that um, you're offering as a result of legislation, a mutual fund window to let people invest beyond the core TSP funds. What does that look like? How will it work? What's the timeline for that, Kim? So we'll be going live with this new record keeper next summer. And when we do, the mutual fund window will be available. Um, And what a mutual fund window is, is exactly what you described. It's a window through which you can invest in um, more than 5,000 mutual funds. And you will be able to take not all, but a portion of your TSP account and invest in whatever your heart desires. In 5,000 mutual funds, I'm, I'm confident you will find whatever you happen to be looking for. Um, and there will be a screening tool that you can use to um, identify because, again, there's that can be overwhelming, right? 5,000 funds, mm-hmm. how do I find what I'm looking for? Um, so there will be a screening tool. So if you're looking for I don't know, a gold fund, if you're looking for a socially responsible or a fossil fuel free fund, you can put in those search terms and narrow what what um, you're, you can then decide on. But I do want to say, and this is key, there will be fees involved because the statute says, the statute that um, authorized the mutual fund window also said that participants who use the mutual fund window will pay for it. So um, we don't want to surprise anybody that that come come next summer that 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 is going to be part of the deal. So this has hit on a couple of things that I think. I mean, the fifteen years I've been talking to you and your predecessor Tom Trabuco, this it sounds like this is the best compromise to hit what people want without the pain points because the pain point the main pain point seem to be if i want to stay in the core funds and i'm satisfied with what the point of the tsp was originally which was to make it simple for federal employees to invest why should i help eat the cost for somebody that wants to do something that's beyond the scope of that this window seems to address that by the fact that they're going to be those people can choose whatever fund they want because i mean we've heard haven't we any number of different why don't you have this fun why don't you have that fun why don't you have and this addresses them all in one fell swoop five thousand choices gotta cover everything i would think and yet the people who want to do it will pay for it and if i don't want to participate in that if i want to keep all my money in cs and i and maybe a little bit in the g fund i can do that and it doesn't it doesn't affect me at all Exactly. You you summed it up beautifully. That's exactly what will happen. Um, and yeah, your your fifteen years of following TSP has stood you in good stead. It's paid um, off, Kim. Absolutely. Paid Look off. at where you are. Look at where you are. Look where it got me. Yes, and we think that you know to the extent that people want to invest uh, in specific sectors in specific types of funds. This provides them that option, but it is certainly not required of anybody. All right. Um, what's the timeline? You said next summer is when this will all be online and available to people? Next next summer, yes. And we are working, as you might imagine, quite diligently. There's any number of things that need to be done 
to make this work right. Are Is the mutual fund window something that will be open to people forever or is it a window like an open season type window oh, that no, no, no. a period it's, of time and then it closes again? No, it is, it is available for whenever. So it's just, it's simple. It's like the um, core funds. You know, if you want to go in and you decide, I want to move money from one fund to another, um, you have that option any given day. You have that same option through the mutual fund window. All right. Kim Weaver of the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. It's great to talk to you as always. Thanks for your help. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about what's coming to your TSP account in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show, I appreciate you doing that very much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Deputy Chief Data Officer at Customs and Immigration Service, Courtney Winship, is on Monday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.